Thanks for tuning into my new show, Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, author of the book, How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in my previous podcast, I shared some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. This series will be dedicated to the personalities who have been working in the Italian wine sector in the U.S., their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. I'll uncover the roads that they walked, shedding light on current trends, business strategies, and their unique brands. This episode is proudly sponsored by Vivino, the world's largest online wine marketplace. The Vivino app makes it easy to choose wine. Enjoy expert team support, door-to-door delivery, and honest wine reviews to help you choose the perfect wine for every occasion. Vivino, download the app on Apple or Android and discover an easier way to choose wine. Hi, this is Steve Ray, and welcome to this week's show. Today, I'm particularly pleased to have as a guest, Jamie Stewart, who works with uh, Ferrari, and will explain the difference between Ferrari wine and the Ferrari race cars in, in a moment. But Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. It's a, an absolute pleasure to be here. So let's ask the first question that always gets asked. And actually, I think it's the question that all of you people who work for Ferrari do. I remember uh, when I was at Ferrari and Massimiliano was given a presentation. That's the way he started it. We're not Ferrari, the race car company. So why don't you dispel that myth for me? Sure. Well, actually, we have to dispel two myths ordinarily when people you encounter people with regards to the brand, because we have to explain first and foremost, we're not Prosecco. And then, uh, moreover, we're not connected to the car company. So Ferrari Trento or Trento from is from Trento Doc. It's in a uh, DOC in northern Italy. Uh, we were first established in 1902 uh, as a producer and a purveyor of um, excellent quality sparkling wines made in the tradition of the Champenois. The car company came subsequently about half a century after us. We've always had a very unique kinship with their organization. In fact, the the two companies have a unique parallel in Italy in terms of their reputation. They're both seen as a, a paragon of luxury brand uh, and luxury production of goods, obviously in two different bandwidths. You know, in Italy, uh, I dare say that if you stopped 100 people in the street and you said Ferrari to them, uh, the vast majority would think of the winery before the car company uh, just because of a general contact, you know, there's a tactile contact that the average Italian citizen has with Ferrari Trento Doc, which is um, superior to that of the automotive group. Literally every household in Italy drinks at least a bottle of Ferrari once per year, and we're 40% of market share for the entire sparkling wine category. So as far as brand recognition in Italy goes, we are very, very strong. Hmm, I did not know that. that that's fascinating. Yeah. Outside of Italy, however, the the, uh, the the role is reversed. Marinello Ferrari commands a, um, a very strong presence in terms of brand recognition. They hand make 7,000 vehicles a year and with meticulous intensity to detail and luxury. And I think it's the finest manufacturing uh, firm on earth for automotive engineering. So we are very fortunate, though, that we both represent the same values that are intrinsic to Italian luxury culture. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the irony is, is that you know, Ferrari, um, the, the roots of the name uh, derive from the same roots as the name Smith here in the United States. And in fact, there are so many people in Italy furnished with the uh, the surname Ferrari that um, it's almost as common as Smith. Give us a little background on yourself. How did you get here? Uh, my story is quite simple. I was raised by a single alcoholic mother who always enjoyed wine at the dinner table. Ordinarily, it came out of a big cardboard box in a Mylar bag made by Stanley Leasingham. 
my mum realising her own deficiencies uh, was adamant about me not becoming like her in that regard. So she would allow me to taste wine at the dinner table. We talked about it from a cultural perspective. I actually didn't develop a deep love for the industry early on in my academic career. I uh, graduated from high school in Australia. I'd worked extensively in the hospitality industry there. I then went to Japan and studied economics at the Tokyo National University. I built a couple of restaurant wine lists there, uh, Maxime's and Sabatini's, whilst working for the American government. I then went to study in Paris um, under Guy Savoie. I worked there as well as a sommelier. I went to Russia and studied comparative political science at the Polytechnic Institute in St. Petersburg. Worked in a beautiful Michelin-starred restaurant there. Came to the United States for love of a woman and worked at a number of uh, fine dining establishments in New York City while I was going to school at Columbia University. I got three degrees at Columbia. And after the, the at the fruition of all of my academic pursuits, I had accumulated five degrees and no real love for any of them in terms of a vocational pursuit and realized that surreptitiously the way I've been paying for my education all along had crept up on me and I'd fallen in love with wine in a very uh, appreciable sense. Um, so I went to work for a, a very famous brand from my home country, actually Penfolds as a uh, global brand director, and then eventually took a, a very strong interest in the wines of the Taub family selections portfolio, which was Palm Bay back then, and applied for a joint position covering Planeta and Ferrari. Uh, and I've been doing uh, working on behalf of Ferrari now for over a decade. Let me shift the conversation now back to race cars. And uh, but instead of uh, the street cars that uh, Ferrari Automotive makes, Ferrari, the wine company, is sponsoring uh, Formula One. And I understand there's a big event taking place in Austin. Has it happened, or is it just about to happen? It happened this just this past weekend. I just returned home from it yesterday. Give us a little summary of what that was all about and how the the winery was involved. You know, the the difficulty of being a non-French producer sparkling wine and the champagne method is that you know you're always given very short shrift in terms of people's credit the, the credibility they extend to you in terms of quality you know and 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 a sense of history or, or prestige and the the, uh, the French have really beautifully marketed the idea that they have a copyright on quality when in a sense all they have a, a copyright on actually is nomenclature on the language of their region but the generally people in, in the wine consuming population have an understanding that uh, French champagne is the pinnacle of excellence and the, the finest expression of sparkling wine, and it just simply isn't true. But it's an uphill battle for any producer that lives outside of the AOC uh, in champagne. And for us, establishing credibility isn't just axiomatically linked to the quality in the bottle, but it's also how we're perceived as a brand by the consumer public. So it's important for us to develop investments and opportunities to showcase our brand in a setting that is conducive to the idea of, of global luxury, the global understanding of luxury. We achieved the first real uh, effort in this by becoming the official uh, sparkling wine sponsor for the Emmy Awards, the first in uh, 70 years that wasn't a uh, champagne producer. Uh, and during the pandemic, when a lot of the big champagne houses were pulling away from their global investments and sponsorships, uh, the opportunity came up with Carbon's withdrawal from Formula One. And at a time that was quite uh, anxious for us in terms of uh, you know, major investments, we stepped up to the plate and told Formula One that we would be their sponsor. And of course, you know, Formula One is a brand unto itself, and it's a very strong brand. Half a billion people watch each race. The economy in Austin just over this last weekend generated almost a billion dollars in revenue as a direct result of the Formula One. So, you know, it's not enough to just offer them a sponsorship fee and hope for the best. You have to have a brand that can carry the weight of expectation that the people associated with the brand you're, you're aligning yourself with already have. And 
um, we did it exceptionally well. We really have been received in a very positive sense. And Ferrari not just fits. There's a feeling is that we've always belonged to that environment because of the way, how stylized our branding is, the quality of our product, and the aptitude people are displaying in, in consuming it. We served uh, fully more than 10,000 bottles over a three-day race weekend just at the track alone. So... It was a tremendous success. So you've served a lot of wine, and that's great. But um, I'm, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. What, what's the value of a sponsorship to a brand? I mean, to a degree, it's similar in some respects to a celebrity brand that, you know, you are using the rub off of the event or the celebrity to benefit the brand. But how does the brand benefit from your F1 sponsorship. There's there's two ways, okay? I and I've I've always said this with regards to developing my brand, and it's very very simple. You know, anything that you do where you invest money, any activity you undertake, there's two measurements. The first is case generating ability. If it can generate the ability to sell cases of wine, that is first and foremost the primary role of any investment. Anything beyond that is just bullshit. Okay, ultimately that's what it comes down to. Everything needs to be done to further the brand because none of us live in a charity bubble. We're not a 501c3. We have to be successful in creating a return on these investments. And from that perspective, it was very, very healthy for us. We had the largest response in terms of general sales associated with the special packaging that we did that we've ever seen with any investment in the United States. From a communications perspective, you know, with half a billion people watching you know the race the, the the really the money shot in the race is when those drivers step onto the podium at the end of two hours and they receive a trophy and a large bottle of sparkling wine which they crack open and spray with just adamant enthusiasm upon their fellow drivers and that's ferrari so half a billion people get to see our wine being held aloft as the spoils of victory by the some of the finest automotive athletes in the world drinking it from the neck of the bottle and spraying down you know, their colleagues with it. So from a communications perspective, it's absolutely priceless, but we also have managed to convey it into a very successful commercial uh, platform. We really, we sold out of everything that we made with uh, specific notation to this event um, quite early. I've got people clamoring right now for additional product that is, has connective tissue to Formula One. So we are in a very good position as, with regards to that. Well, let's bring it around from global and half a billion people watching the event to Austin and Texas as, uh, as a, uh, a market for you guys. You had a couple of uh, promotional partners on this. Uh, obviously, we all know in the industry that we need to talk about three or two other accounts. So we're going to mention a couple of account names other than these, but HEB, the uh, supermarket chain in Texas was involved in the program and Darden was as well. Can you uh, explain how you tied them in? Sure. So, um, and actually I'll tell you one or two others too, that are, that are uh, right there in, in Austin, but you know, the um, first and foremost, our wholesaler in Austin, uh, Southern Glazers absolutely embraced this with a, with a vigor uh, unparalleled in my opinion. You know, I mentioned that half a billion people watch the race on television, but also half a million showed up in person. It's the largest Grand Prix Formula One ever in the history of, of uh, racing. So it was very enthusiastic patronage. HEB definitely stepped up to the plate and um, have done amazing things with the brand. They've, they've taken our merchandising standards and creating massive end caps, display features across the bandwidth of the different products that we were featuring with Formula One logoing. 
we had the um, the president of our company go in and do bottle signings at um, a number of the different store locations. But universally, not just in Austin, but around the state, HEB um, stepped up to the plate. Darden, under the leadership of, of uh, a very dear friend and an incredible woman, Helen Mackey, have uh, have put us into play with uh, the Eddie V's um, group. So more than two dozen restaurants have started to feature the Ferrari Brut Rosé non-vintage by the glass again for a 12-month period, which is incredibly rewarding for us to have an association with her organization. The, uh, the Fairmont in Austin. A signature property. We did some work with the Fairmont in Monaco during the race there, but uh, they rebranded their lobby on our behalf. They put uh, an amazing retail display in the um, the concession that's there in the lobby, and then asked us to join them at the lounge at the track. They did a um, beautiful branded bar, and they served Ferrari as the first uh, you know, uh, gift or offering to their, their top guests as they walked into the Fairmont Lounge activation. Sports Illustrated uh, brought us in as a partner for their lounge at the track where people spend $10,000 a day just to watch the race. We headlined the um, the Sports Illustrated Bootsy Bellows VIP party with chain smokers and um, Travis Barker, etc. You know, it's um, uh, the way that that people, um, you know, uh, and organizations rallied around the brand because of, you know, how well they know their customer base uh, and how beloved Formula One is in that particular market was incredibly rewarding. There wasn't any uh, trepidation whatsoever because we weren't we're not a champagne house. Ferrari is well known there. Formula One is well known there, and it was an absolute kismet for us on a local business level. Dozens and dozens of the top restaurants in the city, you know, She, Red Ash, you name it, um, stepped up and and really supported us in a very organic way. You know, there wasn't any expectation on their part other than an enthusiasm to get behind the brand and see us be successful. And we've just extended the contract from three years to five. So this is going to be a long-term development for us. We're going to continue to work with these partners. And I, I will say this quite genuinely as well. For us, it's not an opportunity to take advantage of vendors and, and, and to serve our own needs. Our brand needs to be successful for that vendor to be successful. And we have a deep concern whenever we sell wine that we're doing everything we can humanly possible to support the success of that client. And, and all of that also has a halo effect on Italian wine in general. But let me ask you a question from the perspective of some smaller producers who are here saying, oh, well, you know, the big company, they can afford a Formula One sponsorship, hundreds of thousands of dollars or more, and all of these, you know, uh, activation type things around it. What lessons did you learn from participating in this that may be applicable to some of the smaller producers? I mean, as an example, I'm talking with a co-op from Northern, from the Trento area. And, uh, you know, what can I tell them from having talked to you? Well, let me first address Ferrari and, and, and the gamut of size, because there's this perception, this uh, you know, popular perception that we are much larger as a brand than we actually are. We only produce about four and a half million bottles of wine per year. That might seem a lot, but then when you look that Dom Perignon is 6 million nine liter cases and champagne is half a billion bottles, we're really like a mote of dust in God's eye by comparison. And when just a mild irritant to the French in terms of scope, we definitely are a dominant producer within our DOC. And with that comes the responsibility of leadership. And these activities, when we undertake them, it's never just to benefit Ferrari. It's also to benefit the other 40-odd producers that do struggle for recognition and market share. You know, this is one of the reasons we don't just talk about Ferrari. We're Ferrari Trentodoc. We talk about Trentodoc, the DOC, and the other members of it, you know, vociferously. And I would say that, you know, we we necessarily, if you were to look at it just on paper, because we've, we've had an appalling attrition during the pandemic. I mean, we went into the pandemic with about 70% of our business model being on-premise, just independent brick and mortar. 
you know, and, you know, our retail presence was independent retailers. We've been very steadfast in supporting local family owned and operated businesses, and they've been crushed by the pandemic and the on-premise arena continues to be crushed by mandates and, and, you know, you know, just nonsensical regulatory things and the lack of people coming back to work. So it's, it's actually a, quite a hazardous time to be investing on a large scale, but it was, you know, the, the courage to step forward and lead from the front leadership is an action. It's not a title. If there was ever time for us to take advantage of the weakness of French producers and supply chain battles, it's now. And we bring those other producers with us from the, the smallest to the largest in the DOC. And we also act in accordance with, with strengthening not just the reputation of the DOC, but the reputation of the producers from a qualitative perspective. We are constantly, as a company and the Lunelli family, take a leadership role in investing in the other producers and making sure that qualitatively everybody from the DOC is beyond reproach. So, you know, it's, it's important for us to do this so that one day, a Cesarini Sforza or another producer from the region can step into that leadership role and we'll happily bequeath it to them. You know, we live or die by the same sword. We're a small DOC in the north of Italy. We stand in the shadow of French Accorda because of how they've marketed, you know, their wines. We've definitely stand in the in the shadow of the juggernaut of champagne. But we're coming for them. Boots and all, we're coming for them. <laughs> I'm telling you, and I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it up front. I, I I find it an absolute affront to dignity that the majority of Americans drink a wine from Champagne that smells of stale vomit and tastes even worse, and they think it's the absolute standard of quality. We are here to stay, and we are going to punish them until they're either gone or they get back to the the business of making better wine and not spending so much money on marketing and putting celebrities' faces on their bottles. So we are we're in a fight for for. Our, our pedigree and our prestige, we're winning the battle qualitatively, but we've got to win the hearts and minds of American consumers and convince them that uh, a word on the front of a label is just an epaulette of a uh, designation of geography. It's not a guarantee of anything other than that a wine came from a particular place. And our wines drink in a way that is wholesome and satisfying and, and vigorous and virile uh, in a way that, that the, the abundance of success in champagne hasn't led them to. Okay. So I'm going to come back and re-ask the question you didn't give me an answer to a little bit later. <laughs> All right. Let, let's come back to a little bit more of practicality. Your importer you had mentioned is TFS, uh, Taub Family Selections, part of uh, Palm Bay. And the president of TFS was just named Wine Person of the Year by wine enthusiasts in their Wine Stars program. Tell me how what that means to Ferrari as one of the brands of that importer and how you guys can leverage that. Again, benefiting, you know, we're all talking about selling bottles. At the end of the day, that's where the business we're in. I, I had the the great pleasure of working for a couple of years alongside of David Taub. And that man was just a gentleman and a scholar. He probably had forgotten more about the wine industry than most of us will ever know. His son has inherited the mantle of of not just ownership but also leadership of that com that company in a way that is staggeringly eloquent. Mark Taub is a very smart man and a very generous man with his time and his consideration, and he has a large portfolio, you know, of which Ferrari is one of the smallest brands. And you you know uh, you know there's a pecking order of attention that you would think that the smaller brands you know uh, are suffer under the duress of the larger, but that's just not the the reality. You know, Mark Taub is a great man because he genuinely makes every brand and the stewards of those brands feel 
as if they're the most important to his portfolio and his people and he himself personally uh, spend a great deal of time and attention, more time than there is in a day actually, measuring out so that there's equity and equality amongst all of his brands. Mark Taub came to Formula One. He celebrated with us. His whole team rallied behind this initiative and this effort in a way that I've never seen uh, an importer do on behalf of a supplier uh, before. And we couldn't be more satisfied and more pleased. And in turn, we do everything humanly possible to support his other brands and the, the overall success of his company. Our success in this country lies in lockstep with his and his and his other brands. And we are a part of a brand family. And we are we are managed by an incredible family. And not just Mark, but his son, as he's emerging in a leadership role in the company, shows the same values, ethics, and capabilities as his dad. So the, the lineage there of leadership. That's Jake Taub. Yeah, they are an amazing family and good people. And that's my first, you know, word I would I could ever say about them. If someone asked me about Mark Taub, I would say first and foremost, he's a good man. And that's the most important thing in any relationship. You know, you know the measure of the people that you you work with and that you dedicate your life to supporting. So let's shift direction a little bit too. You are your, as you were referred to me. A brand ambassador. Now that term has been bastardized a lot in the industry over the last 15 or 20 years, has a lot of meanings, most of them I think bad these days. But explain to me what your perception is of your role as a brand ambassador and compare that, this is where I really want you to focus on, to the industry's perception of brand ambassador being just a sales guy working for the supplier alongside of a distributor salesperson in any given market? Well, my original dream was to pour Bacardi through an ice luge. That was my dream job originally. <laughs> I, I, I've, but I've, unfortunately... I've seen those things with, with some vodkas, never Bacardi, <laughs> but it sounds pretty good. <laughs> well, I'm just, I don't look good enough in a, in a, in a Speedo to, uh, to carry that role, unfortunately. But, you know, look, the, the, there, there is no real nomenclature that describes brand ambassador. There's no job description, actually, that captures the intensity of it. A lot of people think that we just run around drinking wine and talking about it for a living, but it's a lot more complex than that. The The industry as a whole has become a quagmire of inefficiencies at the distributor level, at the import level, supply chain level. And a lot of the time it feels like you're just trying to you know, herd cats to be successful. It's putting out fires. It's it's no longer the the good old days where you really could just traipse around America with a suitcase and a smile and be successful. You're at this job now is is heavily involved and engaged with managing people to their success and their potential. A lot of our distributor partners have moved away from people that have been born into this industry through a love of wine. It's now more of a mercantile pursuit where people are going out each day selling wines that they're told they need to sell or they're incentivized against without giving any real thought uh, or wisdom to the needs of the accounts that they're going into, aside from that of their own. You know, so it's- Isn't that demonizing distributors? I mean, they do play a very, very vital, important role, but yeah, go ahead. It, they, no, they, they, they are our first customer. The reality is, is that if you're a small supplier within a small importer and you're coming up against a constellation, you know, or, or a massive uh, import partner, you know, for us, for instance, okay, we, we come head to head against champagne uh, suppliers in any wholesale that we're with. And just the amount of money that the champagne suppliers have to wield in terms of incentivizing choice for wholesale managers when they go into the field to sell 
is is just enormous. And then there's the incentive dollars that go towards the at the account level to be successful. A lot of the choices these days, whether it's what wine to put in the bag to go out with tomorrow and which wines go into wine lists, is, is all predicated on how much money you've got to spend. And as I said, we're not a large producer. We, we bankroll excellence and quality and the love of Italian made things in the United States. Um, that's how we are, our fortune is funded. Well, let's get back to the, the, the question that I asked, which was, um, and I appreciate, it's an issue that I run up against a lot. Um, the expectation by distributors and articulated by them right up front is if you're going to put feet on the street, uh, boots on the ground, people in the market, brand ambassadors. My point of view is that is not necessarily effective. It is certainly not, it, it is challenging to be affordable and it's not anything that's scalable from my perception. So while everybody likes the idea of having more feet on the ground, the reality is the role, my opinion is the role of a brand ambassador has dramatically changed from augmenting what's already happening to substituting for distributor sales attention. Yeah, no, and that's exactly where we've gone. I mean, the, my role involves communicating about the brand to people that work in public relations as a field, to consumers, to wholesalers, to definitely trade members across both retail um, and on-premise bandwidth, doing specialized events, developing investment potentials for the brand, developing uh, brand partnerships in terms of synergies with other brands. These are all roles that ordinarily, it's like a restaurant situation. You know, uh, you know, post-COVID or even post-9-11, a lot of sommelier roles disappeared. And then all of a sudden, the maitre d' had become the general manager and the closing shift. And then maybe it was a captain in the restaurant on one night. And there's a diversification of the role. It was in the past just to be an academic uh, resource to distribute a salespeople. But now the the amount of skills that you need to be a successful brand ambassador on behalf of a brand is, is you know, you're constantly representing them on, on a, in a number of different, a diaspora of different settings and expectations. I mean, just last week, I was tasked by my importer to do a presentation for Ferrari to the Hard Rock Hotel Group and uh, Hard Rock Cafe Group. And the questions that the Hard Rock Cafe asks you to explain about your wine is, does this wine rock and is this wine edgy? And I did it by doing uh, extensive tasting notes on our wine set to music. You know, I'm I'm comparing the Ferrari Brut Rosé to the, uh, you know, immortal duet between Cher and Meatloaf, Dead Ringer for Love, you know, and it's like, there's very, there's, but it, 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 it worked. And in the end, in the end, you, you have to have a dexterity to your skill set where you can do that and sit down in front of Brinker or Darden and make a compelling case. You can help design a private label for Disney. And then you can just stand in a store next to a, a, a dis retail display and talk to consumers that are coming in that are very price conscious about how they're spending their money. That's what a brand ambassador does. There's no, there's no. It's knowing your audience. And when you have the comfort and creativity to adapt what you're saying, not to the company line so much as your personal passion in this. I found, at least in my experience in the wine industry, that's what people really relate to. The wine industry is not about wine at all. I, it, I've never felt that the wine industry is about wine. Wine is just the amalgam that brings all of us together. The industry is about people. We share a common love, and that, that common love is typified by subjective understanding of wine. There's no, there's, it's not an objectivity about wine that draws wine people together. And being able to convey convincingly and with the requisite comfort zone, the way you talk to a buyer for a national account 
whether it's a you know a, a Michelin restaurant or a, a global rest, a hotel chain or just a buyer in a standalone independent retail store, you use a different language, you use a different tenor, but you convey the same values. And that person needs to trust you, that you as the face of the brand are compelling and that you're going to be there for them when they need you. It's not enough anymore to just sell a product into an account and then come back 12 months later and say, how are you doing? You need to follow up religiously. You need to follow the person that you've made a relationship with. You follow them on social media. You see when, they're, when they, they've gotten a new dog or they've, you know, they've had a baby or an anniversary. You become invested in the lives of the other people that help us keep this whole shit show together that is the wine industry in the United States of America. <laughs> but it's a happy shit show, I think. It is. I, well, <laughs> anybody who has too much blood in their alcohol system shouldn't be in it for a living. So well, I wasn't going there, but I was just, I'm just back from Italy at um, Stevie Kim's Wine to Wine event, which was just exhilarating to be around people and the conversations about new stuff that's happening, new technologies that are happening, which leads me back to the question earlier that I said you didn't answer. So what have you learned or what can you share from your experiences with the Ferrari F1 partnership, as well as your regular career that, that happened before that, that a smaller producer might be able to benefit from that doesn't have the prestige, the money, the apparent size or the legacy or story of a Trento Doc sparkling wine? How, how can a, a little guy from uh, Puglia sell in Primitivo, what can he use from what you had done? Look, my best advice to any producer, especially in, in a in a in a small production capacity is this, and that is just stay the course. You know, this wine at the end of the day, especially with small producers, is like poetry and romance in a liquid form. There's there's a very unique altruistic virtue involved in building a small brand and casting it out and casting it to the wolves of the larger competitors in our set. Everyone is struggling right now. It may seem that some are struggling less than others, but that's not necessarily true. I think the larger companies can hide the uh, the chagrin that they feel the way things are right now. At the end of the day, what wins is quality and that that sense of romance that that compels people to buy things. You know, uh, you be, you become a brand not because you've thrown money at the idea of building brand presence or penetration. You become a brand because enough people love you that just naturally want to support you. you know, the idea for any small brand stakeholder should be this: is to create at first like a temple night organization of people who are true believers, who really love and give them things to talk about, give them experiences to talk about. And eventually things will grow organically from there. If you focus too much on what others are doing, especially the larger competitors in your class or your market share, it's easy to be daunted and it's easy to let them bully you. You've just got to put your head down, focus on what you're best at and be, be true. Be honest and forthright and courageous and be true. At the end of the day, this industry is a transitory thing. It's small brands becoming larger brands, becoming successful brands. We're all in the process of, of brand development, um, and that's what I do for a living. I'm, you know, I'm a brand builder. Ferrari is established for a lot of people, but the, the vast majority are unfamiliar. You said it yourself, the confusion between the car company. How many people at Formula One mistook us for being Ferrari the Automotive Group? How many people at Formula One mistook us for being a Prosecco? These are things that even a successful brand like Ferrari still has to overcome. And you can't get caught up in the minutiae of those things or the frustration of, of being misidentified or, or mischaracterized. You've just got to keep doing what you're good at. 
and not losing faith that, you know, if you shoot your heart out of your chest like a cannon for something, then in the end, you'll win. Okay, well, a little practical perspective here, too. When I am working with brands and we're talking to prospective importers or distributors or retailers or even consumers, there's a tendency for everyone to start talking about quality. And I use this as a test. I ask people, tell me about your brand to see whether they understand what's going, what's needed in the U.S. market. And invariably, it's always, I make a really great whatever. And my grandfather, you know, bought the, the business after or bought the farm after World War II, or it was inherited from Frederick Barbarossa 800 years ago or a thousand years ago. And that's really not relevant at that point in time in the conversation. And a lot of people, when we do that, say, look, okay, I'll stipulate your wine is wonderful. I don't even need to taste it. I think in this day and age, the ability to technically create wines that are commercially just call it acceptable. It may be spectacular too, but the point is there's no no flaws in them, with the exception of cork and TCA and all that. But but back to the issue. The quality is not a relevant subject in the beginning. What what most of the people that we deal with is how are you going to help me sell it? That's what they really want to know. They don't articulate the question, but that's what they really want to know. Do you agree with that? I do in a sense. I think that there's a struggle for a lot of small producers to move their wines to a more ubiquitous, not not qualitative level, but a style, a style that's more comfortable. I'll tell you, as a producer of wines alongside of, within our brand set, we have wines that we make in, in Umbria. And you talk about wines that are made with Sagrantino as a, as a grape, either full throttle or as a large percentage. You know, when you approach somebody whose understanding of tannin comes from drinking Silver Oak or Cama Special Select, and you present them with Sagrantino, they're in a corner and a yeah, no, they're in a they're in a corner in a fetal position, sucking on their own thumb in humility. You know, it, it's inculcating. <laughs> unless they unless they've had to not from Uruguay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But the thing is, is that you know, you know, I, I hate when things become so ubiquitous that there's no distinction amongst of style. You're right. The the the, the majority of wines, the gamut of wines today, are good quality for sure. I mean, the technical still skill. Uh, to create good quality wines is easily accessible and, and affordable. And and language isn't really anything. You can say all you, you want about the poetic virtues of a wine. It's really, in the end, it's how it tastes to a consumer. But our job is we've got to be talking to people before they have that experience of tasting. Obviously, in-store tastings and all those kinds of promotion tools are important, you know, liquid to lips, as everybody says. You've got to front load their expectations for what they're going to to receive. Exactly. And to me, that's the biggest challenge because we kind of default to this wine spectator or wine advocate model of it tastes like, you know, red fruits with uh, a structure of something here and then a hint of something. I mean, that's kind of the, the structure of a wine review. From my perspective, it's all bullshit, right? I, I, I don't know what a gooseberry is, much less a sautéed gooseberry, right? But I've seen that in, in, in descriptions. And I find that just not only foolish, not only uh, not working, it's intimidating and off-putting to consumers because they think that maybe there is truth in that. You want to comment on that? No, I mean, look, honestly, a lot of the people that, that form the intelligentsia of the wine industry are at best, and I, I hate to say this, but it's true, when it comes to conveying things to consumers, they're intellectual masturbators. You know, they're in love with the sound of their own voice. It's true. 
What's the difference between a lingonberry and a, and a gooseberry? That's like saying, what's the difference between a 96 and a 95 point wine? You know, it's, it's like, you know, we've, I think we've all drifted away from the fact that loving wine is subjective. It's not objective at all. You can be the font of all wit and wisdom about wine. You can think that you live in an ivory tower and breathe a rarefied air. But at the end of the day, consumers that are struggling to have courage in their choices need real sensory information about what the wine's going to taste like and you have to bring it back to a baseline if you're talking for instance if we're talking about Trento Doc and, and Trentino Alto Arage and the Dolomite Mountains and et cetera and the vistas of our vineyards, it all has to be rooted in what those things mean to the way the wine tastes. You know, the, the level of sugar in the wines, the 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 aromas of fruit. You know, you, when you talk about apples, you know, Granny Smith, you know, uh, Golden Delicious, Anjou Pear, you know, these things people that are are familiar with. In a setting when you're just you know talking to all master psalms, you know, you may use a different a different verbiage. But you know, the idea is to to make a compelling and honest statement about your wine in the simplest terms because you also don't want to set somebody up for a disappointment or intimidate a person and drive them away from your wine because you're talking about it in, in a, from a perspective that they can't possibly grapple with. You know, personally, personally, sometimes I like to describe our Tete wine or some of our vintage wines as being like a Grand Cru white burgundy with bubbles made by La Lubis Loire. But how many people understand what that actually means other, other than the enameled pin set, you know? So I don't use that terminology ever, you know, when, uh, when talking to consumers. And I prefer to talk to consumers actually because they're the people that are buying my wine and not asking for free samples of it for their seminars and everything else. So I love getting down, rolling up my sleeves and actually finding a way to talk about how wonderful it is to drink my wines to people who actually drink them. And they do it um, because, you know, maybe a $30 choice for a sparkling wine isn't an everyday consideration for them. You know, and sparkling wine tends to fall into that category of special occasions. You damn well better make a wine that's equitable with that. Because if someone's drinking it at their wedding or their birthday or their son's christening or whatever else it is, it's got to seal the deal in their memory as something beautiful and evocative of what the, the emotional context is, is presenting. So for us, it's even more difficult than if we were making a Cabernet or a Chardonnay, you know? Interesting. Back to what you were saying before, I'm a big believer in back labels. Now, I've seen a lot of research that said nobody looks at the back label. And yet I've stood in stores and watched people and they look at, a, a, you know, the first thing they see is the label. And there's generally not a lot of information on the label. Even, well, there is like on German wines and some Italian wines for that matter. They're still not getting the question answered. What does it taste like in words that I understand? And uh, the answer to the question, will it go with what I'm having for dinner tonight? Th that's what I think people want. And that's really the function of a back label. So I was once working with a uh, a Spanish wine and we came up eight words that I think were, were really brilliant. They didn't use anything like terroir or hints of or any of that. It was uh, taste great with tapas, try it with tacos. And I think in those eight words, it kind of captured what the wine was all about. It made it like, oh, this is an everyday wine that you can appreciate. It goes with spicy food and all that kind of stuff. And I've always... We do the same thing with our rosé. Excellent with pizza. Yeah, that's it. Our rosé is literally, it's an epiphany for a Neapolitan-style pizza. Excellent with pizza. What's wrong with that? Absolutely nothing whatsoever. The beauty of Italian food and wine culture, it, it's its great wine, great food, and the memories that are forged in the company of those two things. There's this, there's this duality between food and wine in Italy that forms its own group. And I think that's the difference between Italian wine and French wine. You know, French wine is very intellectually driven. It's not rooted necessarily in serving the traditions of, of French food in a sense. It's, it's It stands separate. They run parallel, but there's no event horizon where they meet and become one. Whereas 
Italian wine is a direct offspring of food culture. You know, it's an identification of, of, of what this food needs to make it exponentially magnificent beyond its own natural properties. If it grows together, it goes together concept. Yeah. That's right. And the whole idea of Italian culture is the dinner table. That's where people should gather. This whole idea about, you know, cocktail parties, stale canapes, you know, and, and tired conversation. And, you know, I prefer environments where people don't actually talk about wine at all. They ingest it. And there's those beautiful moments of silence when you're rolling it around in your mouth and the, the swell of it in your throat, where it's contemplative in the, in, in, within the group, but I individually. And Italians have really got that down in, in spades, you know, and, and you're right. I mean, we are, we have access to the kind of wines. I always tell my friends this when they ask me about what it's like working in the wine industry and it's, it's like this you never become wealthy in the wine industry but you live every day as if you were that was absolutely brilliant stuff uh, <laughs> a big thank you to jamie stewart of ferrari what, what's the formal name of the company it's, it's gruppo lunelli but ferrari trento is the specific sparkling wine division uh it's been an absolute uh, delight to talk with you. It's been a really enlightening uh, conversation and I really enjoyed it. The, the pleasure was entirely mine. I really do admire um, wholeheartedly what you're doing. You are definitely an, an, an agent of love and change and appreciation for the Italian wine community. You play an invaluable role. And for those of you that are listening, I wish everybody Godspeed. I hope that everyone remains safe and healthy and adamant about getting back to a normal life where we can gather together and celebrate and drink the things uh, that we love. This is Steve Ray. Thanks again for listening on behalf of the Italian Wine Podcast. Hi, everybody. Italian Wine Podcast celebrates its fourth anniversary this year, and we all love the great content they put out every day. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People has become a big part of our day, and the team in Verona needs to feel our love. Producing the show is not easy, folks. Hurting all those hosts, getting the interviews, dropping the clubhouse recordings, not to mention editing all the material. Let's give them a tangible fan hug with a contribution to all their costs. Head to ItalianWinePodcast.com and click Donate to show your love. 